Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Land use plans have caused tensions between new organic farmers and traditional family farms. A lot of these young farmers today are making some good money. They can buy a farm, but not at the current price. There is no way they can make it. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll follow up our story on forgotten New England farms, and we'll tap into the political debate over another kind of farm, a wind farm in Vermont. We'll also ask if legalizing pot in Massachusetts and Maine might open up a new black market in New England. And we'll get inside the head of the kind of embezzler that makes big news in a small state. And you're convinced that the next day you're going to go to work and everybody's going to know and you're going to be ruined. And then the next day you go to work and nothing happens. And in New Hampshire, an outhouse turned ballot box. <laughs> that was part of the part of the uh, thing, you know, and people like it. Right. That's about the only place this ballot belongs is in the toilet. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up, as two New England states consider legalizing marijuana, our reporter looks west and hears concerns about bootleggers and cartels. What is going to stop a drug cartel from purchasing property, renting property here, and running an operation out of that property. And that's something that could be situated next to a school, next to a hospital, in a suburban neighborhood. That's a real problem. The politics of pot. But first, we're going to follow up on two stories about how we use our land and the tension it can cause between neighbors. Voters in the Vermont towns of Grafton and Wyndham will soon vote on a proposal by a Spanish renewable energy company to build that state's biggest wind farm. Vermont has aggressive clean energy goals, and plans like this are a way the state hopes to meet them. But the project has become politicized as the vote comes in the middle of a race for governor. It's also raised questions about just how far a big company can go to garner support for a controversial project. Howard Weiss-Tisman covers Southern Vermont for VPR, and he joins us now. Howard, welcome to Next. All right. Thank you, John. So you've been covering this story for a long time. What can you tell us, first of all, about this big wind project in the towns of Wyndham and in Grafton, Vermont? Yeah, this project was first proposed about four years ago, and the original project included uh, 28 turbines in the towns of Wyndham and Grafton. These wind turbines are 500 feet high, and recently the developers reduced the size of the project. They took four of the turbines out of Wyndham, and uh, to address some of the concerns that people had about noise and the visual impact of these wind turbines. The project's on a private piece of land that's about 5,000 acres, and it's uh, on a plateau that straddles both towns. And even with the reduced size, the project would by far be the largest wind project in Vermont at about 83 megawatts. So there's a vote coming up in the towns of Wyndham and Grafton in November. It's on Election Day. And we'll get to some of the politics behind this in just a minute. But but tell us what exactly they're voting on. Are they voting this project up or down? Well, what's important to point out is that in the state of Vermont, our regulatory body, uh, the Public Service Board, makes the final decision about these projects. But the developer 
uh, Iberdrola Renewables, which is from Spain. Uh, it's a Spanish energy company. On Election Day, the town of Wyndham and the town of Grafton will each hold independent votes on the project. And the developers have said that if the project is rejected, they would not apply for state permits. Of course, this gets to, to one of the big controversies surrounding this. We, we read that this energy developer is essentially giving payments to town residents. I mean, we hear often about uh, an energy company wanting to come in and do a project and uh, promising tax revenues back to the community or a certain number of jobs, but they're actually paying people? Yeah, yeah this is a development that just came up uh, last couple of weeks. Both of these towns should be pointed out. They're very small towns, Grafton and Wyndham. They're some of the smallest towns in the state of Vermont. Anytime a company is making a proposal to a town on a project like this, there are often payments involved. And originally, the company said it would make annual payments to the town on top of the property taxes. Now, some of the supporters of the company uh, met with representatives. And the way they saw it, these payments would unfairly benefit some of the largest landowners because these payments would reduce the taxes. And if someone owned 50 acres or 100 acres, obviously, their property taxes would go down much more than people with smaller parcels. So what the company did recently is the company said that each registered voter in each town would get annual payments. And in the town of Wyndham, it's about $1,100. And in the town of Grafton, which has fewer turbines, it's about $430. Um, one of the interesting points of all of this is that second homeowners are not being allowed to vote on the project, and they also would not benefit from any of these payments. And second homeowners is a pretty big part of, of these towns, right? Yeah, second homeowners make up more than 60% of the tax base in Grafton. And some of the opponents of the project said that these payments were akin to uh, paying off people for votes. They raised the issue with the Secretary of State, and the Attorney General's office in Vermont studied the proposal, and they said it was, in fact, permissible. And they said the payments, which are optional, did not go against Vermont election laws. <laughs> it seems kind of remarkable. It seems you know, to the outsider like, boy, that, that's buying somebody's vote. But uh, the Attorney General says, says otherwise. So are there more politics at play here, Howard? I mean, I know you've got a, a big governor's race happening. Is this, is this affecting the governor's race in the state and in these two towns? This is one of the issues that is coming up in the governor's race. Another thing to say is that this is going on in other towns around Vermont. The Republican candidate, Phil Scott, has said that he would stop ridgeline development across the state. And the Democrat, Sue Minter, says that it's important for Vermont to move ahead with its uh, renewable energy goals. And she would like to see more wind developments. Of course, for the communities you cover, Howard, one of the most important things has just been the impact of this debate. And, and, and what have you been hearing from residents? It sounds like it's, it's causing a bit of divide in these towns. Yeah, from the start, this has been a really contentious issue in both towns. And there's been a very vocal opposition to the projects. And I spoke to one person, Lisa Kissel, and she's actually a Democrat. She's voted Democrat um, for the 15 years, she's actually from Finland, and she's been in this country for 15 years. She generally votes Democrat, but she's voting Republican this time. And this is what she told me about it. We found out about it four years ago, 
and Grafton has not been the same since. Uh, the, the community is divided. I think that is about the only thing that some of us who are on opposite sides of the issue actually agree on. We all agree that it has divided the community. Relationships that had been quite solid and stable before are no longer. And um, uh, even within families and among neighbors, there is now strong disagreement. And this uh, is a very much a hot button issue that you know most people seem to have a strong opinion about. Yeah, so as you can hear, uh, Kissel is pretty upset about the way things are going. And I'm not sure that the vote is really going to put an end to a lot of this. There are a lot of uh, relationships that were broken. There have been a lot of harsh things said on both sides of this issue. And uh, I'm not sure if either town is really going to be the same again, regardless of whether this project goes ahead or not. Howard Weiss-Tisman is VPR's Southern Vermont correspondent. He's been following the story for us. Howard, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, John. In southern New England, land is scarce. That makes farming really, really expensive. In fact, Rhode Island is the most expensive place to grow food in the country. So the state government there set up a program to acquire open space and help new farmers buy land. But that attention paid to these new farmers, part of a local food movement that promotes small and organic farming, can cause a rift between them and larger family farms. It's something we heard last week from Sarah Gardner on the show. She's producer of the documentary Forgotten Farms. It's about New England's declining dairy industry. Um, a lot of energy and attention and publicity is going to these new food farms, which tend to be quite small and produce quite a um, small amount of food. Um, and that is to the detriment of our commercial dairy farms because they are producing a lot of food that we need um, and so they're not getting the attention, and, and, and on the contrary, they're often getting disparaged. Rhode Island Public Radio's Ambar Espinosa reports on this land acquisition plan and the questions that it raises about the government's role in setting the price of an acre of farmland. The Department of Environmental Management is still hashing out the details of its new land acquisition program, but the gist of it is buy farmland up for sale at fair market value and then resell it to other farmers at a more affordable price to keep farmland from being developed. This may not sound controversial, but farmers like Justin Dame have a problem with it. His family has been farming for six generations in Johnston. Dame doesn't trust the government. Back in the late 1960s, his grandfather lost farmland to the state through eminent domain. He doesn't think DEM has any business subsidizing the cost of land. If you have an advantage, a good lease or a good rent or, you know, your family handed down land generation to generation, that gives you the hand up over other people. It's what industry is. I mean, you start taking away that and trying to make everything fair and equal, then the state has to be involved in everything. Dame is convinced the state's program will favor small farmers who grow organic food. There's a big demand for this. I mean, a lot of young guys coming out, young people coming out of colleges and are feeling that way, that, you know, this is a healthier, better way to eat. And by all means, meet the demand, but don't run to the state and ask for help. You know what I mean? Dame's father, Jay Dame, worries the state, with help from the federal government, will carve up farmland into smaller plots to create low-income housing. Basically now they're calling the shots on the local planning boards as to what our communities are going to look like. 
The Dames are not alone in their concerns about the program. Other farmers and conservative groups are calling it a communist redistribution of land. We are not under threat of communism. We are in a highly capitalist society. Andy Radin is following many theories floating around about this project. He works with lots of farmers as an agriculture extension specialist at the University of Rhode Island. Radin is fully behind the program's goals to support farmers and protect farmland. Still, he thinks the rules need work. I see a lot of vagueness. I see things that are not spelled out with clarity. And if you want to get people up in arms, the best way to do it is to be vague. State officials say they left the language vague because they're still writing the rules and they wanted to get public feedback. But Raiden thinks that strategy has backfired. He sees conservative groups taking advantage of the situation in a charged political season. We're not taking advantage of anything. We are connecting the dots. Mike Stenhouse is the executive director of the Rhode Island Center for Freedom and Prosperity, a conservative group that's one of the leading voices against this project. So to think that somehow this will become a, remain a purely voluntary program is very naive. Stenhouse thinks this program will eventually turn into eminent domain. He rejects the argument that DEM doesn't have the powers of eminent domain to acquire land, even though other state agencies do. And Stenhouse says it doesn't matter that the agency has no track record of acquiring land by force. I'm not going to talk to a, a track record because we're trying to stop the track record from happening in this state in an abusive way. Stenhouse sees a pattern of big government forcing an agenda of sustainability and egalitarianism on local communities. He thinks the program got started at the United Nations and has trickled down to the federal government and state and local initiatives. To Stenhouse, this is socialism creeping into the free market. This is just not the proper role of government. We do not trust our politicians to be pure. We know there's corruption. We know there's insiders who are, who are being planned to benefit from this. Far from it, says Ken Ayers, the chief of DEM's agriculture division. Ayers says the program is open to all farmers with a strong business plan. Whether it's organic or conventional, whether it's turf or food is more or less irrelevant to the selection process. Ayers says the program will help farmers with less than 10 years of experience and farm income less than $350,000 per year. If you look at federal statistics, that's over 95% of the farmers in the state. And our thought was that's the income range most likely to need this type of assistance. Development pressures and demand for farmland are driving up land values. In Rhode Island, one acre is worth an average of nearly $14,000, the highest in the country. At a meeting about DEM's land acquisition program, Paul Bruley, the former director of the Rhode Island Farm Service Agency, made the case for helping new farmers. A lot of these young farmers today are making some good money. They can buy a farm, but not at the current price. There is no way they can make it. But they're making a decent living on small acres and all rental. Finding land to rent is also a challenge. Tess Brown-Lavoy started farming an abandoned lot in Providence and now leases more farmland across the border in Seekonk, Massachusetts. She works with a regional nonprofit that connects retiring farmers with newer farmers looking for land. I mean, land is such a high cost. It's a barrier to entry for all different types of farmers. And the idea that some people would be barred from the profession because they don't have the means to purchase land, that's so unfortunate. DEM officials say they will clarify the rules of the state's new land acquisition program, 
but opposition is deeply rooted in mistrust of the government and values that simply don't line up with what the program is trying to achieve. Opponents hope a lawmaker will take up their fight in the next legislative session. That's Rhode Island Public Radio's Ambar Espinosa reporting. Coming up, the politics of pot as legal marijuana hits the ballot in Maine and Massachusetts. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. When voters in Massachusetts and Maine head to the polls this November, they'll be faced with ballot questions about whether to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. Big money's flowed into the campaigns on both sides, and it's sparked arguments about bringing an end to the failed war on drugs over the science of how dangerous the drug is and whether it's a good idea to make this drug legal in the middle of an opioid epidemic. But as Fred Bever from Maine Public Radio reports, there are other concerns coming from the experiences of Western states that have already legalized. It's a worry about smugglers who could set up shop in a legal state and export it to other states where it's illegal, untaxed, and even more profitable. During the Prohibition era, it was whiskey being run from Canada or Mexico to the U.S. Now it's marijuana that's being smuggled from Colorado, where it's legal, to neighboring states and beyond, where it's not. It's, it's probably our number one concern. Andrew Friedman directs marijuana policy for Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. He says organized criminals are exploiting legal loopholes by collecting home-grow licenses that allow for as many as 99 marijuana plants each. And more generally, he says, criminals are using the state's fully legalized pot economy as cover. Different ways you can use Amendment 20 and Amendment 64, the medical and the recreational, to, to kind of cloak yourself in legitimate growing. Uh, but unfortunately, um, there are a lot of people who want to do that in order to sell out of state because there's, there's a huge economic upside to selling out of state right now. As in a pound of pot worth, say, 1500 bucks at the counter of a legal Colorado marijuana shop is worth $3,000 or more when it crosses the state border, instantly transmuted into a prized black market commodity. And criminal gangs are moving in, creating a headache for Colorado law enforcement, dangers to public safety, and a field day for the media. Seven suspects are behind bars after a massive drug bust. It's the largest and most sophisticated case ever uncovered in Colorado. This is exclusive video of what 1,500 pounds of pot looks like. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration says last year, state highway patrols intercepted more than 3,500 pounds of marijuana that was destined for states beyond Colorado's border. That's just a tenth, they estimate, of the actual cross-border market making it conservatively a $100-plus million proposition. And those numbers do not include some busts of some pretty big syndicates, many of them recently involving Cuban or Mexican nationals shipping high-potency product to Florida or other states. And for Colorado's neighboring states, it's a doubly frustrating problem because not of their own making. Nebraska, Colorado's become ground zero for marijuana production and trafficking. John Bruning is Nebraska's attorney general. He and his counterpart in Oklahoma are trying to sue Colorado and force it to overturn its marijuana laws. Uh, while Colorado uh, reaps millions from the production and sale of pot, Nebraska taxpayers have to bear the cost. Virtually every aspect of Nebraska's criminal justice system has experienced increased expenses 
to deal with the interdiction and prosecution of Colorado marijuana trafficking. One Nebraska study found that border counties saw gradual increases in pot-related arrests, jailings, and costs since medicinal marijuana was legalized in Colorado, and a surge in 2014 when the recreational pot law went into effect. Marijuana advocates cautioned, though, that such statistics may be skewed by changes in enforcement strategies over time, and the U.S. Supreme Court recently declined to review the complaint by Colorado's neighbors. Now they're looking for other venues to pursue their case. Meanwhile, here on the East Coast, voters in Massachusetts and Maine are considering full legalization on the November ballots, and Canada Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is calling for legalization there. And if any or all of those measures are approved, police in neighboring states are bracing for some new challenges. Andrew Shiguri is Tufton Borough, New Hampshire's chief of police and the state chiefs of police association's point man on pot. If Maine or Massachusetts does go for legalization, he expects that at the least, problems such as small-scale smuggling and intoxicated driving will spill over the borders. If more does spill over, the direct effect, I, I suspect, would be more accidents with people under the influence. I mean, that's something that would be obviously a public safety concern. And I think politically you'd see more pressure for it to pass here, too. And Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey expects that organized crime would open up new fields of operation. What is going to stop a drug cartel from purchasing property, renting property here, and running an operation out of that property? And that's something that could be situated next to a school, next to a hospital, in a suburban neighborhood. That's a real problem. But some note that Colorado neighbors, such as Nebraska and Oklahoma, have relatively strict marijuana laws, creating a strong incentive for smugglers there. In New England, there is a more relaxed culture around marijuana. Every state in the region, except for New Hampshire, has decriminalized possession of small amounts of pot and allowed use of medical marijuana, perhaps reducing potential black market demand. Essentially, says Vermont's Attorney General, William Sorrell, Vermonters are already growing enough pot to meet most of their smoking needs. But Sorrell is worried about the introduction of edible marijuana products into the regional marketplace. And I really think the, the regulators have to do a lot more effective work on the quality control to be able so that buyers know what the THC content is, what is a legitimate serving or size or portion, uh, because I think there have been and will continue to be potential problems of over-ingestion of marijuana. There are specific parts of the measures in Maine and Massachusetts that could make it harder for criminals to aggregate licenses for big grow operations, and there are specifics around controlling THC content as well. Alicia Melnick, communications director for the legalization campaign in Maine, says there is much to learn from the Colorado experience. The way that the Maine initiative was designed was intended to limit the uh, grow space to provide for the main market in a way that did not overproduce and invite any kind of diversion. She and other advocates of ending pot prohibition point to what they believe would be the most effective way to end the black market economy, and that's to legalize marijuana in every state. That's Fred Bever reporting. 
Now, college students in Maine might play a big role in whether the ballot question gets passed. Marijuana use on campuses is at its highest level since 1980. But as Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg reports, students might not see any big changes even if the drug becomes legal. On the campus of Bates College in Lewiston, pretty much every student feels the same way about question one. I think it should be legalized. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm from Massachusetts and like... People are going to do it regardless, you know, so if it's legalized, it's, you can put a standard on like what people are smoking. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, if, if people feel comfortable with it, why not? Most students didn't want their name used for this story. But one, junior Alexander Gwillem, views marijuana as a safer drug than alcohol. She says drinking at bars or parties can lead to rowdiness, overconsumption, and risk-taking behavior by students. But with marijuana, she says, it's a different situation. It's pretty low-key. Like, in my opinion, it's a lot more casual than drinking. You know, it's like something you do in, like, a small group of people. There's really no pressure. Whereas if you go out drinking, it's, like, super loud and, like you know, sticky and hot and messy. So I feel like marijuana is just the more like, to use like the term chill, you know, (laughs) a lot more relaxed. It's frustrating, Willem says, that marijuana is treated so much differently than alcohol, both by law enforcement and by campus officials. She says campus police may tell a student to just pour out their beer or wine. But for marijuana, they'll give you a strike or a fine. Get three and you're suspended. Let's not criminalize this group of people because they like to use something that makes them feel good that is not actually that dangerous, you know? But while Gwillem and other students may want more relaxed school policies when it comes to marijuana, the reality is that's nearly impossible. The reason is federal money. Virtually every public college receives tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funds for things like financial aid and research. But that money comes with some strings attached. Universities need to follow the Federal Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act, which bans marijuana use. We have nearly $900 million annually in research funding, so certainly that's a focus for us is maintaining our eligibility to get those federal research funds. Ken McConnellog is a spokesman for the University of Colorado, which wrestled with these same issues after Colorado legalized marijuana sales in 2014. McConnellog says the school opted for a two-pronged approach, beginning with education. McConnellog says it's understandable that students would mistakenly think marijuana was legal on campus. So as soon as new students get to campus, particularly out-of-state students, the school sits them down and talks about drug use. McConnellog says if the messaging doesn't work and students still decide to use marijuana, then the school gets tough. You know, it's important for us to, you know, err on the side of being strict about this. It's easy for people to say, well, I didn't know or I thought it was legal, but we feel like given the messaging opportunities that are out there and the kind of things we do with students, you know, ignorance is not much an excuse. However, the bigger question is, will these students come out to vote? University of Maine political science professor Amy Freed expects the answer to be yes. Freed says college students tend to head to the polls for presidential elections, and that should mean a boost for the legalization campaign. Freed compares this year's marijuana initiative to Maine's 2012 referendum on same-sex marriage, which passed by a 6% margin. Where that was another issue where there were really big differences by age group in terms of support. The younger one was the more supportive of marriage equality, generally the more support for LGBT rights, and similarly 
more support for marijuana legalization. David Boyer, the political director for Legalize Maine, understands the importance of the college vote. Because of that, he says his group is planning to have extensive get-out-the-vote efforts for students, including volunteers driving people to the polls on Election Day. So we're, we're, we have a pretty robust plan to make sure the majority of young people get out and vote this time. And if enough of those young people make it out, they could be one of the deciding factors on Election Day. That's Robbie Feinberg reporting. Both of those stories are part of the main public radio series, High Stakes. You can find links on our website, nextnewengland.org. As Massachusetts considers the question of legal recreational marijuana, it's doing so with a much different tax model than other states. The Massachusetts plan starts with only a 3.75% excise tax. It's about half of what Colorado imposes. The topic was part of a debate aired on WBUR's Radio Boston. Host Meghna Chakrabarty moderated with Josh Miller of the Boston Globe. And this question, why not start with a higher tax rate, was put to Jim Borgasani. He's communications director for the Yes on 4 campaign. His debate opponent is Jason Lewis, a Massachusetts state senator and part of the No on 4 campaign. The 3.75% excise tax on a billion dollars worth of sales, that would give the state $37.5 million just for the administration of our program. By comparison, the Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission oversees about 20,000 licenses. They have a budget of $2.2 million. There would be sufficient money to fund the initiative and to return money to taxpayers. Well, Jim Borgasani, let me, let me press you on that, though, because uh, Governor Charlie Baker, Attorney General Maura Healey, and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, all of whom oppose Question 4, as you well know, yes. they issued a joint statement saying that, quote, here in Massachusetts, we face the possibility that any new revenue would be vastly insufficient to cover the cost of ambulance rides, emergency room visits, and treatments. And those are just the hard costs. So they dispute the fact that your, your assertion that, that the 36 or so million dollars would, would cover the new costs associated with legalization. They have, we have not seen increased public safety costs in any other legal state. It has not happened. We have not seen increased ambulance rides. And by the way, ambulance rides are covered in, by insurance, and Massachusetts has the highest or the lowest amount of uninsured people in the state. So there's not going to be an extra cost for ambulance rides. That's just sort of that's alarmist rhetoric that we've seen, seen from our opponents over and over again. What we have seen is actually reduced um, um, law enforcement costs and tax revenues coming in that have helped, again, with schools, with treatment, with education programs. So we've seen a net gain for those states. We will not see a net loss for this, and it's, it's, it's irresponsible of the governor and the mayor to say that. Jason, I want to give you a chance to cut in here. Thank you. What, what is irresponsible is this tax rate, and it's not a surprise it was so low. Again, this valid question was written by the marijuana industry for their interests, and they want to keep the, the rate low. Um, in Colorado, they've even, as we heard, have not lived up to the promise, uh, the fool's gold, that this would pay for schools and roads. And you know what? In Massachusetts, under this ballot question, it'll be far worse because the tax rate is a half of what it is in Colorado and a third, by the way, of what it is in Washington state. And we don't tax medical marijuana in Massachusetts. So the numbers in Colorado include medical marijuana as well, which we are not proposing to tax. So we will be in a situation where these revenues, um, according to the analysis of the special com Senate committee that looked closely at this, is unlikely to even cover the direct costs to set up a regulatory structure, to um, enforce that, that structure, the direct public health costs, the public safety training, developing a breathalyzer t equivalent test, which doesn't exist today on our roads. So this will not generate any revenue to help our schools or or fix the T, or anything else. In fact, it's likely to be a money loser for us. And that doesn't even include all the soft 
intangible costs of increased uh, health issues and, um, and the social, full social costs. That's Massachusetts State Senator Jason Lewis advocating no on the ballot question number four, which would legalize recreational marijuana use. The other voice was that of Jim Borgasani. He's communications director for the Yes on Four campaign. That debate came from Radio Boston. You can hear more. Go to our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, you've heard the story. Small town finance director gets caught skimming from the till. We'll delve into the mindset of the embezzler next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. When I heard that Brave Little State, the people-powered podcast by Vermont Public Radio, was tackling the question, does Vermont really have an embezzlement problem? My ears perked up. That's because the town I live in, which is tucked in the foothills of the Berkshire Mountains in northwest Connecticut, had its own embezzlement case that made national headlines, and it nearly left our town broke. The former finance director of Winchester, Connecticut, stole about $2 million over a five-year period, leaving our town unable to pay its bills and forcing some big cuts in services. Do a little digging and you'll find no shortage of embezzlement stories around New England. There's a tax collector, for instance, in Anson, Maine, who for 42 years manipulated adding machine tapes to skim excise tax payments off the top when residents registered their cars, stealing about $500,000. There's a priest in Manchester, New Hampshire, who spent diocese money on gifts and travel for a musician he was having an affair with. And also in New Hampshire, employees have been caught siphoning funds from the local historical society in three different towns. Now, I'd never heard about Vermont as a state filled with embezzlers, but it's clearly something that residents of the state are talking about. Here to talk about her investigation for Brave Little State is VPR reporter Angela Evansy. Welcome to Next. Hey, thanks for having me. So first of all, how did you get started on this quest to determine if Vermont actually has a big embezzlement problem? Every month we answer questions that have been asked by members of our audience. So for this episode, we got a question from Sean Obarski, who lives right outside Burlington in the city of Winooski. And his question was, hey, what's with the high occurrence of embezzlement cases in this state? Sean says he's lived here in Vermont for about 10 years, and he feels like every time he turns on the news, he's hearing a story about embezzlement in some, you know, small rural town. Um, and he wanted to know what was up. So this is obviously a very intriguing question, um, but before we answered it, we wanted to figure out, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, does Vermont actually have a high occurrence of embezzlement? And of course, that, that leads you to find some stories, I'm sure. There are probably some, some favorite ones as you went down this rabbit hole. Yeah, there were a lot, uh, a pretty um, wide spectrum of types of stories, but it seems like there are kind of two general types that really capture people and get quite a lot of media attention. Um, and the first, maybe not surprisingly, is an embezzlement of a great magnitude, at least here in Vermont. Often we're talking about pretty small towns. And one of the biggest cases in recent years was back in 2011, an embezzlement came to light of $1.6 million from the Hardwick Electric Department. This is a local utility in a town of about 3,000 people. For perspective, that town's budget that year was about $2.3 million. 
So the embezzlement was carried out by a longtime employee over the course of a decade. She had used some of the money to renovate her home, and she eventually was convicted and sentenced to three and a half years in prison. I think the other kind of embezzlement story that gets a lot of attention is one that seems particularly unfair or ironic given who or what the victim is of that crime. So one example was a case uh, recently that was discovered um, had a nonprofit here called Hunger Free Vermont. This is an organization that works on food access for everyone from Vermont students to Vermont seniors. So, you know, a pretty unquestionably admirable mission. It came to light last year. Their director of finance had embezzled about $165,000, mostly by cutting checks to herself and forging the signatures. Um, And she pled guilty to that crime as well. You researched a story about uh, someone stealing from the state of Vermont Office of Risk Management. It's another one of these stories where when you see what people are buying with the money, that's one of the things that really galls the public. This was uh, over $200,000 that was stolen again over the course of of a few years um, by an employee in that office. And she was using the money that she stole to pay her property taxes, um, to buy a car and a boat, um, some firearms. And actually, the embezzlement came to light in a really interesting way. In 2014, uh, a guy in Michigan was going to sell a guitar to this woman over eBay. um, And he actually was the one who basically uncovered it. He became suspicious um, and ultimately alerted officials when the check he got for payment was made out by the state of Vermont. It's uh, it's quite a life, I suppose, some of these people are making for themselves. In a lot of those stories that we've been reading about, the embezzlement was going on for years and years before someone found out about it. Uh, Last year in Maine, we found the case of uh, Russell Rusty Brace, who stole over $4 million from a charity where he was treasurer. But this took place over the course of 15 years. What have you learned about what goes through the mind of these really long-term embezzlers? Well, for this story, I talked to one long-term embezzler, a man named Tom Hughes. And he carried out many, many embezzlements over the course of like two decades in Vermont and Maine. He eventually served time in state and federal prison for some of those crimes. Um, And I got in touch with him because today he's a fraud speaker for hire. Um, I found him through his website, www.hireathief.com. So here's what he told me about the psychology of embezzlement. You steal something, you you write that check, and then once you you press the button that says transmit the wire transfer or you drop something in a mailbox and you can't retrieve your crime anymore, then you start to worry. And you're convinced that the next day you're going to go to work and everybody's going to know and you're going to be ruined. And then the next day you go to work and nothing happens. So you get over it. And then a couple of weeks later, you do the same thing, but you probably do it for more money. I just found it ironic that now he's, I guess, getting paid to talk about how embezzlers think. It's, it's quite, a, quite a little niche he's carved out for himself there. So the big investigation that you guys undertook here is trying to figure out for your listener how bad this embezzlement problem is in Vermont. So so how bad is it compared to other states? Yeah, this was really kind of the, the preliminary question that we wanted to answer that became the primary question. In terms of data that does compare Vermont to other states and could tell us, you know, how we measure up, the most prominent source, if not the only source, is um, this thing called the Marquet Report on Embezzlement. Its lead author is named Chris Marquet. He's a private investigator. He's been working in this field and kind of around fraud issues and white-collar crime for 
you know, 30 odd years. Um, and he issues this report, the Marquet Report. It's come out six times um, for data from the years uh, 2008 to 2013. In three out of those six years, the report has named Vermont the most, quote, at risk for big ticket embezzlement. And, and it's gotten a lot of coverage here locally because of that. So, so how exactly does he calculate that Vermont is most at risk? Chris Marquet has developed this trademarked equation that determines what he calls a state's embezzlement propensity factor. Uh, he says this factor is an indication of how at risk a state is, how likely it is that crime will occur there. It's not just a count of like how many cases there were, how much money was stolen overall in that year. Um, so it's an equ- kind of complicated equation that captures a few different ratios. It looks at the relative losses for that state and also the relative um, likelihood of that incident based upon population. In a perfect world, the embezzlement propensity factor for a state would be one. In 2013, the most recent Marquet report we have, um, Vermont's factor was 4.25. Okay, so this um, factor that he's created sounds, frankly, as I listen to your podcast, like a little bit of mumbo jumbo. Is it really a fair way to calculate whether or not embezzlement's a, a big problem in your little state? So the Marquet report, you know, it's not peer reviewed or published in a scientific journal. It's self-published by Chris Marquet on his website. I asked a few Vermont officials what they thought of it, and I did find one very vocal critic um, in Vermont's state auditor, Doug Hoffer. He told me he had all sorts of issues with Chris Marquet's equation and his methodology in general. So, for example, he points out that the Marquet report only looks at cases that involve $100,000 or more. Um, Doug Hoffer says, you know, that just doesn't paint an accurate enough picture because there's all this small-time theft that could be going on. Doug Hoffer was also very critical of the way that this equation was formulated, taking into account population and GDP. He said that basically stacks the deck against small states like Vermont. So here's what he told me. We're so small. And I ran some numbers because I was curious about what would happen if you change the numbers for Vermont. If you uh, assume a couple of hypotheticals that assume that Vermont had one large incident, as we did a couple of years ago with the Hardwick utility, but the total number of cases declined. Obviously, our bottom line number would go down, but we'd still be in the top five. It doesn't matter what you do. If you use this formula, Vermont is always going to be in the top five or six. Okay, so what does this expert, Chris Marquet, say about this? I mean, what's his rebuttal? Yeah, I put that to Chris Marquet, and he said, you know what, that's just not right, because if you assume Vermont had only one case, That would bring the ratio down uh, if you bring the number of cases down. He says the whole idea is to balance the number of cases with the relative economic losses in the state. It's it's not just basic counts. It's it's ratios. So he says that, you know, that what Doug Hoffer is saying is just isn't accurate. All right. So you've got this uh, strange calculation that says that Vermont may be most at risk for embezzlement. But that's only one thing that you had to dig into. You're also just trying to find out more information. And in your investigation, Angela, it turns out it's really, really hard to find out about embezzlement cases. Tell us about some of these roadblocks you ran into. 
Yeah, well, I really wanted to try to corroborate Chris Marquet's data, but I basically learned that no one is tracking these numbers as closely or the way that Chris Marquet is. You know, I went looking for national data, and I talked to the research director at the National White Collar Crime Center. Um, he told me when it comes to national data, it's, quote, very, very, very difficult to come by anything that could be considered accurate. Um, he told me the FBI does track embezzlement in a cursory way, but this is voluntary reporting, and they track arrests, which are really different from convictions. Um, and most importantly for this story, they don't differentiate the numbers on a state-by-state -state basis. So that wasn't useful to me. When it came to tracking down our state data, I did have some success. Uh, Vermont keeps track of all the embezzlement incidents that are reported by state police and local agencies. But it's not possible to tell which cases were above 100 grand the way that Chris Marquet does. And the other issue is that some critical agencies here are actually having trouble sharing their data with the state. Uh, I talked to Dr. Robin Weber. She's the research director at the Crime Research Group in Montpelier. And here's what she said about that. So there's a whole swath of, of, of data that's missing, but we know that it's missing and the state is working to correct that. And how long has it been missing? Year and a half. Okay. <laughs> a year and a half, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that doesn't instill a ton of confidence, actually. Um, no. So you're a native Vermonter, from what I understand, Angela, right? Yes, I am. So is this a question that, that has been on your mind? I mean, is this something that you have a theory about yourself? Well, on a personal level, it's been on my mind a little bit because actually there was um, an embezzlement case in the town where I grew up in. Even before I was a reporter, you know, it was something I was aware of. But... In the VPR newsroom, something we are always kind of talking about and trying to remember is this thing called the myth of Vermont exceptionalism, which is, I think, this idea that a lot of Vermonters walk around with that, you know, we're special in all these different ways. We don't have billboards on the side of our road. We have the highest per capita, this, that, and the other thing. There are so many superlatives that Vermont often is identified for. And I think that kind of rolls into other things that aren't easily quantified, like trust. And I think there's maybe a little bit of a hope that, you know, Vermont is a more trustworthy place, right? A lot of small towns, a lot of legitimately strong, vibrant communities. And that sort of thing doesn't happen here, or that sort of thing shouldn't happen here, when in fact it does. Angela Evansy is digital editor for News at Vermont Public Radio, and she's also co-host of the great podcast called Brave Little State from Vermont Public Radio. Angela, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Finally, the little town of Ashland, New Hampshire, has an outhouse that's causing a bit of a stink. And it's not because it's located right next to a farm stand, either. As NHPR's Sean Hurley learned, it's about what happens inside. We're winding through the pumpkins and the freshly picked produce, Chris Owens and I, at his farm stand on Route 175 in Ashland. And I'm not here to buy corn or lettuce. I'm here to find out about Owens' brand new amenity. I've always wanted to build an outhouse here. Cool, I say, because one, cool, follow your dreams, and two, well, I can't think of a two yet, but there it is. A great wooden outhouse by the side of the road, right in front of his farm stand. You can look in the toilet if you want. <laughs> I'd say there's at least a hundred. Look in the toilet, a hundred. 
A hundred what? We head toward the outhouse, I guess, to look. So I thought we'd have an outhouse, and then I thought, well, we should have a two-seater so people can both sit in there. This is sound. This is practical. This is terrifying. We'll have an old Sears catalog. That's what people used for toilet paper way back then. But then, a stroke of insight, of bathroom genius. At some point during the construction phase, a eureka moment. Then I'm thinking, a polling booth is almost the exact same size as an outhouse. So Owens painted a sign over the outhouse door that reads, Official New Hampshire Voting Booth, and then set a mannequin on either side of the two-seater. We called around, we had to go to Massachusetts to get a Trump mask and a Hillary mask. And Owens put the masks on the mannequins and plugged some flags into the roof, and then, above the Donald Trump mannequin, He set up a sign that reads, If I am elected, we will build a wall between Plymouth and Rumney, and Rumney will pay for it. It's classic. Classic, but I was still a little confused. So it's a working two-seater outhouse. So then when you use it, it's like you're voting? No, that would be so disgusting. Right in front of a vegetable, organic vegetable stand to put a freestanding outhouse. So it is a freestanding outhouse in front of an organic vegetable stand, but it's one of those decorative ones, and you don't vote the way I thought. Instead, you collect a ballot from the farm stand, and then... You know, you put your ballot right in the toilet. <laughs> that was part of the part of the uh, thing, you know? And people like it. Right. That's about the only place this ballot belongs, is in the toilet. We peer down through the toilet seats at the piles of ballots. It took off immediately. Like, instant. There was people, cars here, just taking pictures, wanting to vote, and it just spread. Owens guesses a couple hundred votes have already been cast and expects more than a thousand by November 1st when he plans to post the results by the side of the road. See that? There'll be a sign... Trump, blah, 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 Hillary, blah, blah, blah. Owens informs me that I'm not going to be allowed to leave without first visiting the outhouse. Let me give you a ballot. So, ballot in hand, I step inside the outhouse, close the door, and vote. That's Sean Hurley of NHPR reporting. If you want to see pictures of Chris Owens' outhouse, go to nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Lucy Nalpathanchel and Lydia Brown. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.